0: so much and that he has made that evident in the way that he lived in the things that he did while on this earth and certainly in the way that he continues to be our savior going forward and when we are reunited with him in eternity we'll see the one who indeed cares for us thank you for being here today And we are at a part of our services where we are going to study together, and I invite you to open your Bibles very briefly to the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter, where we're going to begin. We'll only spend a moment or two there, and then we'll move on to some other passages. Glad to have so many people uh, from other states and other parts of Tennessee visiting with us, as well as those who are regularly here. Uh, You are an encouragement to us if you are traveling, and as I uh, appreciate Brother Josh pointing out that there are. this would certainly be a good place for you to land. You may say, well, I'm not thinking about moving. Well, think about moving and, and joining with us. Well, no, we need you in your places, whether it be in Florida or Kentucky or elsewhere in, in the country, doing the work of the Lord there. But this is a good group, and it's a group that cares about spiritual things and that wants to do the things that are right. We're going to read in Hebrews chapter 9 a passage that is uh, quite familiar to many, uh, and if you say, well, I don't remember what Hebrews 9 is about, uh, you may say that indeed, I know more about it now at this particular time as we uh, adjust the microphone and get everything ready here. So you may have missed the first part, but it was all good. It was the best part of the sermon. <laughs> Most people say the best part of the sermon is when it goes back to black and then the lights go out. And No, I'm kidding. This is a good group. I was thinking about this as Brother Ben was talking throughout eight sermons this week that you are a group of people who regularly, whether it be to Ben or whether it be to David or whether it be to me, uh, are complimentary, are considerate, and are caring. And we appreciate that so very much. Perhaps sometime in the next 48 to 72 hours, in the next two to three days, someone will say to you, What did you do this weekend? And you may say that you went to a a party or that you went to some sort of an event or maybe you did some work around the house. At some point, invariably, you're going to say, well, the weekend was important to me because I gathered with the saints and I worshiped God. And they may say, well, that's wonderful. I I knew you went to church. I forgot about that. Uh, What was this sermon about? And, you know, you may say, well, it was the most uplifting sermon I've ever heard, or it was the best sermon I've ever heard, or it was something that just made me feel good. Well, let me just start out before I give you the title of the sermon for those of you that don't know where we're going this morning, that today we are talking about death. And so you say to your friend two to three days from now, say, yeah, we talked about death. We we talked about death for 30-some minutes, 40-some minutes. And the preacher just went on and on talking about dying and death and the end of life. And they may say, well, that sounds like a complete disaster of a Sunday for you. But I hope that even though it may not be the most comfortable story to talk about and the most comfortable thing to consider, that when we think about mortality, that when we think about the fact that our lives are temporary and we think about that death will come our way, that we will be ready for it, not only in preparation for the life here to come, but that while we are living on this earth, we are comfortable with that concept. And that is really the thrust of the argument that I'm trying to make this morning as we think about the idea of wrestling with mortality. There are some sermons, uh, Ben would have mentioned this, David mentioned this from time to time, that uh, you think about weeks or even months or sometimes even years in advance. There's been times where I've, I've uh, debated a sermon for six months and just gone back and forth on it and made some notes every few weeks and then after the course of about 15 weeks, I finally say, okay, three months is enough time, four months is enough time, five months is enough time, I'm gonna actually preach this and see how it goes. Came up with this sermon topic at about 1.30 a.m. Monday and I knew where I wanted to go late last week But something at Monday morning at around 1.30 when I was awake said I'm going to talk about wrestling with mortality. Because mortality is a real issue. But we wrestle with it. We discuss it. We have to deal with a a difficult topic, as we'll talk about in just a moment. And that when we think about the idea of death, that it involves an appointment. Something that we must keep and we must meet. Appointments are a funny thing. And that you make those appointments in this life, whether it be for a doctor or an oil change or whatever you're trying to do to get a task done, you have the option, especially if you do it 48 hours in advance or 72 hours in advance or whatever the contract says, that you can cancel that appointment and not be charged any sort of fee. There are certain appointments that if you cancel it within a 24-hour period, you're going to be charged a percentage of the fee of the doctor or whatever the contract demands of you. But when it comes to the appointment of death, there's something different about that kind of appointment, as we'll read here in just a moment. But certainly, this is not the most pleasant topic to discuss or think about. If you ask men and women on an average basis, and you poll a thousand different men and women, and you ask them, what, is your, what are some of your biggest fears, invariably in the top three, it will be death, the idea of leaving this life. And that is okay, and I'm about to submit to you that when you ask just average men and women, what are you afraid of, and they say death, that doesn't necessarily make you a non-believer or a non-Christian. In fact, I would suspect that out of the 180 or so that are present here, as well as those who may be watching online, that if someone were to come to you and say, what are you concerned about? What is one of your biggest fears in life? You may say, well, death, not in the sense of where I'm going, but the idea of how I'm going to exit this life. And you would like to go at a a, a ripe old age, just in your sleep, and very peacefully, and certainly that's the wish that we all have of one another without any pain. But we've got to be real, and we've got to face reality, and that is death comes to us all. The only caveat or the only difference is if we don't experience physical death in the way that those that our loved ones have left this life that we care about and miss, and Jesus returns, and we don't face death in that more traditional way. But death will come to us all, and that is found not only in common sense by looking around at the lives of those that you care about and those that you miss, but it is also true in the way that the scriptures have revealed it to us. And so here in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, And as it is appointed for men to die, he says, once, but after this is the judgment. Now there's a hopeful verse that comes after that that ought to be included, it seems to me, in this reading, in that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. This is not necessarily a study about this particular text, but rather just using this text to point out that even 2,000 years ago when the Bible was being recorded and written, God, by way of his Holy Spirit, wanted us to get the picture that we will die. It is an appointment, and every single one of us will face the grave at some point. In fact, that is found, if you wanted to go back and jot down Genesis 3 and verse 19, where indeed when God is rendering the punishments and the sentences to both Adam and to Eve, as well as the serpent, he says, you came from dust and you're going to return to dust. You were created out of the ground just as Adam was thousands of years ago. And you will return to the ground as well. And then a passage that I had not spent too much time thinking about, I've studied the book of Job a couple of different times with a couple of different people over the last few years or or so, is a passage that I came across in Job 21. And I wanted just to read just four verses, five verses real quickly, and let the text speak for itself. I'm not going to make very many comments about it, but I just thought it was an interesting text. Job, of course is this classic account of a man who had everything, then who had nothing, and then had to wrestle with the idea, not necessarily of his own mortality, but of the mortality of the people around him and the disease that he was now suffering. And so in the 21st chapter, it says, can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those on high? And he goes on to say, one dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease, and secure we understand that to be true, right? At the same time, his pails are full of milk and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They lie down alike in the dust and worms cover them. And I I don't point that out just to make you feel down and to make you feel depressed or distressed. But the Holy Spirit thought some however many thousand years ago, it was important for us to get that picture and a very vivid one that we are all eventually going to face death. In the words of my preacher friend who works here, death is truly, as David says, the great equalizer of mankind. And when he made that statement a a few months back, I thought that's really powerful that whether you are rich or poor, And we have all known of people who have been in their 80s, 90s, and 100s who've passed away, as well as people who have been young children who've passed away and everybody in between. Death is no respecter in that sense. It comes and it is the great equalizer. And so I wanted us to think about death as being a fearful thing, but I wanted us to go back to where we began our worship service this morning by talking about what I would call the real fear Because I I would argue, and I would submit, and I would be in the same group of individuals that would say, yes, the idea of death is a little bit uh, uncertain or a little bit uh, of trepidation. And some of us, either because of our age, maybe because of our health, maybe because of our DNA, think about death more often than others. Uh, as we get a little bit older, we probably think about death a little bit more. Uh, at least I would think. I'm not old, so I wouldn't know that yet. But I would suspect that t- if I double my age, which I doubt that I'll live that far, given my, uh, well, let's say well, my diet and those things, but given my my uh, family genealogy uh, at age 88, almost 90 now, uh, that... Uh, I'm probably going to be thinking about it a little bit more than I did at age 44 or 45. But I'm asking you whether you are a child and you're old enough to listen at age 10 or whatever the case may be or whether you are well into your 80s or 90s, I want you to think about the idea of death, not to be afraid of it. And I hope that parents don't come up to me in a throng today and say, thank you so much for the nightmares that my children are going to have tonight. But even as young children or teenagers or those in your 20s or 30s who have your whole life in front of you, at least so you think, think about it for a few moments, and that the real fear is that the separation from the Lord is worth a whole lot more fear and trepidation. And that takes us back to the passage that our good brother Josh read for us there in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. And I wanted to highlight just verses Four and five. And if I were going to really delve into the detail of this particular text and spend 10 minutes on it as opposed to two minutes on it, there are a couple of things that I might point out. But this is, of course, where Jesus famously says, Don't be afraid of someone that can kill you, and that's the end of what they can do. But be afraid of God who has the power to cast you into hell. Which we spoke about has been ably talked about hell, I believe it was Tuesday evening in his sermon, and that it is a reality and that it is a place designed for the devil and his servants and his minions. But one of the things that I would point out to here is this never really struck out to me is that Jesus calls these throngs of people, he says, friends. You know, when I have a conversation with my closest friends, I don't call them up and say, hey, how you doing, friend? Let's talk about death. But Jesus says, friends, there's nothing more important for us to talk about than death, and then the more spiritually important death that comes with a separation from God. Case in point, or application in point, I might say, is that if our friends... In the world, do not know about death and the consequences associated with being separated from God, are they really our friends? And I'm asking that question of myself as I catalog the conversations that I've had with people in the world and whether or not I've shared that message. Let me take you to an Old Testament passage that, again, I hadn't really spent too much time thinking about, but uh, earlier this week I was reading in Isaiah. And I want to read chapter 51, and I actually want to read uh, just a couple of verses here, maybe eight or nine verses here. And I'll let you reread it on your own at a slower pace. But Isaiah is, of course, a very lengthy prophet. Uh, Sometimes we only read maybe two to three chapters of Isaiah. and Maybe we get a little bit uh, glazed eyes and we move on to something that doesn't cause us to glaze over. But there are so many things in the book of Isaiah that are important. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. This is verse 7 of Isaiah uh, chapter 51. He says, Listen to me, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, don't be afraid of their insults. Verse 8 For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient of days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? A lot of things that we could say about these particular passages, but we're just gonna again highlight them briefly here. He says in verse 10, are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road?" For the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now pay very close attention, if you haven't already, to the final three to five verses here. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? And of a son of man who will be made like grass. And you forget the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth, fearfully, continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he is prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? Drop down to verse 15. I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose ways ward, and the Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth. I have recovered you with my shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. If I wanted to paraphrase that 8 to 9 verse section in about 10 seconds or less, it would be, do you not know who I am, God says, There is no need of fear, including of death. Now, there's more going on in that text. But he's saying there, I'm in control. And you got to remember that the real fear is being separated from God. God comforts. There's no need to be afraid. As long as we are faithfully serving our Lord, what about the idea of death? and the idea of saying that there is comfort in death. Is there comfort in death? Absolutely there is, or at least there should be. Or at least maybe say at an early part here in the first half of our sermon as we progress to the second part, that if you don't have comfort with the idea of death, we definitely want to talk to you because we want to get you to a place where you say I'm I'm okay with it because I have hope That makes all the difference. But I want you to open to the most famous text in all the Bible, at least in the Old Testament. And I want you to actually open up, even if you've memorized it, even if you've read it or quoted it a hundred times in your life, I want you to open to the 23rd Psalm. When I was thinking about this particular sermon, I was thinking about what text I was going to use. And the text that I was going to use is actually the last uh, section of verses that I'm going to reference, and I ended up adding on all these different chapters or different parts of the Bible that just seemed to fit in so well. At least it seemed to fit well at the time. I'll let you be the judge of whether it works together well. But I thought about the 23rd Psalm, and if I were going to do a true sermon just on the 23rd Psalm, here are three or four things that I'd point out, but before, I want to read it. And you may say, well, I already know the 23rd Psalm. <laughs> Talk about that in just a moment as well. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We could spend an hour meditating on those powerful words, but let's spend maybe about three to five minutes doing so seems to me that one of the things that I would point out if I was really going to study this particular text with someone is that David's care for his sheep would have been the gauge by which he saw his Lord's care. He's writing this from a shepherd's point of view and he knows how much he cares for the sheep that are in his fold, he knows, as he was writing this some 3,000 years ago, give or take, he knows that the sheep are definitely and totally and wholly dependent on him and that without him, they'll die. And so he begins this powerful 23rd Psalm that we now quote and is read at so many funerals. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you are a Bible believer or an atheist, they still read the 23rd Psalm at those funerals. But yet he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And I've spent my life shepherding sheep and trying to provide for their safety, but the Lord is my shepherd. And he's a better shepherd than I'll ever be to those that are in my care. Seems to me to be the parenthetical statement he might make. And in our Lord as well. Secondly, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, not someone else's. Now, it is someone else's, don't get me wrong, but you can read, memorize, quote, write down, do whatever you want with the 23rd Psalm, and just as David talks about his shepherd, you are talking about your shepherd, and I'm talking about my shepherd. And go through and just underline the me's and the my's, or at least look at the me's and the my's in Psalm 23. And you'll see where this is a very personal thing on the part of David himself. And then, as I was thinking about death over the last week and a half particularly, and as Monday rolled around, and as uh, the week has been tragic on so many different levels with death being spread around us, the month has been tragic with people that we are now missing. I was thinking about this and having a conversation with just uh, someone a few days ago. Just in the short time that I've been here, how many people we've lost, men and women, that we care about. And I'm a firm believer, by the way, to quote from a famous sociologist, that there are certain things you don't ever get over, but there are things you learn to accept and live with. I can't find that necessarily in a biblical passage, but I think there's biblical principle for that. And so those of you that have lost your spouse in the last 2, three, four, 10, 20 years, or a child or your parent, I'm not about to tell you you're going to get over it, and I think it's unfair for me to tell you to get over it, but the Lord will be there to comfort in death, and so he says, in the valley of the shadow of death, by the way, I think that might mean different things to different people, I don't know that he's just talking about the valley of the shadow of death. I think that David certainly had, I know he had uh, instances in his life where his life was threatened, where individuals were throwing spears at him, trying to pin him to the wall and destroy him in the process. But it may be a difficult financial situation. That's the valley you're going through. It may be the loss of a friend Maybe a difficult mental or emotional challenge. and may be the loss or the potential loss of your best friend who's a pet. It may be the loss of your own life, the loss of your job. It could be a lot of things. And I think that maybe some of the things that could be going on here is that David through the Holy Spirit is saying, when you go through a difficult instance or circumstance in your life and it lasts for days or weeks or months or years, God is with you and he wants to comfort you because he is a God of love and a God of comfort, which ends to the sixth verse. You may say, well, there's a lot more in the 23rd Psalm than what you pointed out. I'll grant you that. But he says here in verse 6, he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord, not just for a short period of time, not just for a 1,000 years, but forever. And that's the hope that does not disappoint. Every time I read the 23rd Psalm, I think about the famous story that was told by a, a British individual a number of years ago that I shared, I think, two and a half years ago, and I'm going to share it again, uh, the idea that there was a group gathered together at a dinner party, and afterward, they were all discussing biblical passages. And one person says, my favorite passage is Psalm 23, and I'd like to quote it for you. And so he quoted it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He went on through all the words, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And everyone said, that's a very beautiful passage. Went on to the other three, four, five, six people, and they all did different passages, and he got to the last person, and she said, well, 23rd Psalm is my favorite, and I like to quote it. So she quoted it. And at the end of it, everyone was in tears. And the man who started out by sharing his passage says, what was the difference? And he said, it seems like you knew the psalm, but she knew the shepherd. It's one thing to know these words, but it's another thing to know the shepherd that protects us. And she was in tears as well. And that hope comes only because of the resurrection. We've got to know the psalm. We've really got to know the shepherd, which all comes with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which changes absolutely everything. This, it seems to me, is the point that Paul, by way of the Holy Spirit, was really trying to drive home late in the epistle called 1 Corinthians. It is the longest of his letters. And it's long because, in part, he had a lot of correction to make. He had a lot of things to deal with and a lot of issues to address. But pretend that I was doing a sermon just on 1 Corinthians 15 and I was going to outline this. Here are five major things that I get. And I'm not gonna read all 35 or 40 verses that pertain to this particular part. But 1 Corinthians 15, if that is not a part of your uh, bi-monthly study where you read 1 Corinthians 15 at least six times a year, start inserting that into your reading and read it every once in a while because it is encouraging, it is powerful, because it's all about the hope that comes in Jesus the Christ. And so let me just share with you just five things that that jump out to me in this particular text. One of those is that there are a lot of people who witnessed Jesus both before and after his death. Absolutely. And the point that Paul is making here is to a group of Potential skeptics or skeptics regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Because if you don't have the resurrection of Jesus, not to get too far ahead of myself, it's impossible to have hope of a resurrection for us. I mean, if Jesus died as a great man and was buried and he's still there, that's a, that's a beautiful story about a man who, who lived to serve others. But there's a lot of people that have lived and served others who died. Granted, none with perfection of Jesus, but it's kind of like, what's the rest of the story? The rest of the story is he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. You ask me how I know he lives? I like that song, although I want to add on, he lives within my heart and because of what I read in the scriptures, but you see the point that I'm making. Indeed, as we began this morning, there are no tears in heaven, and Jesus, yes, he cares. The corruptible body will be raised in an incorruptible form. I am not about to tell you what I understand that to be exactly because I can't explain that completely. I know it's going to be different. You know, people ask the, the $64,000 questions. Will, will we know one another in heaven? Uh, will we recognize people? Uh, will Paul have a name tag on or will we just find the great line leading to Paul before we talk to him? I, I don't know. Someone once said, I I don't need a mansion, just give me a broom closet in heaven and I'll stay there. I'm fine with that because as long as I'm close to the king, that's all that matters to me. Thirdly, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, makes all these things possible. For example, in verse 45, the first man, Adam, being a living being, the last Adam or Jesus Christ became a life-giving force or a life-giving spirit. All of these things related to the resurrection are part of God's purposeful, everlasting, eternal plan. I know that because he was buried and he rose again the third day, quote, according to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures there in 15.4 are not New Testament passages, it seems to me, but the Old Testament passages that pointed towards this big event. Someone once said the Bible is about a big event that's going to happen, a big event that happened, and then a big event that happened. And that's how you get it. And that big event is Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And the fifth point in one of my favorite verses that I've talked about so many different times is that the results of no resurrection or our refusal to accept its truth is that of misery or pity. In verse 19, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If you only have hope in this life because you're not a Christian or because you don't believe in the things found in God's inspired word, that is a pitiful, miserable thing. And you may say, and those who would hear a message like this that you are either non-believers or, uh, or atheists or, or those who just refuse to accept any of these truths, say, oh, I'm not miserable, I'm not pitiable. In reality, you are. And in reality, you will be, which is what we're trying to guard against by giving you this hope that comes from Jesus the Christ, which brings us then to what a final point, and that is reality and faith. And I go back to where we began, and I want to go back to a passage that was the initial passage that I wanted to get to. This is where I started. Sometimes you end where you started when you deliver a a sermon or give a class. But the reality is this. And again, I I hope that you don't walk away saying that is the most depressing sermon I have ever heard in my adult life. But you and I will one day pass away. And there's nothing that you or I can do to stop that. Because of the appointment of death because of the reality of mortality with which we wrestle. You may say, well, I'm gonna gonna take care of myself and I'm gonna take all my vitamins and I'm gonna exercise frequently and that's great and there's nothing wrong with doing so. You're still going to pass away. And I don't want you to think about someone that's older than you or someone whose health is maybe more susceptible to you. I don't want you to think about sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so whose health may be really waning. When you think about you, you will pass away. And at some point, there'll be some sort of a service or some sort of an obituary or some sort of series of comments or conversations made about, well, he was sure a good person or she was sure a good person. It will be said about you. Hopefully, there'll be good things said, right? And so I want you to turn to where I started a week and a half ago before I got to Monday morning's title, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5. I was recently thinking about this particular text and just, it just struck me. And I thought, given the fact that mortality is real and that it's on the minds of individuals that are present who are mourning, maybe because of something that's happened recently or something that's happened a decade ago. Therefore, therefore, and we could start earlier in chapter 4, but let's start in verse 16. We do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And he goes on in what I would call an unfortunate chapter break, in my opinion. We do not know, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, this body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, in this tent, in this life, in this body, some more than others, we groan. Earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we won't be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan. We are burdened not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God. Who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee or a pledge. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And we are confident, yes, well pleased and well pleased rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our goal, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. Why? Why are we putting forth all this effort? Because, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I love this text so much. And I was reading it last week, and I said, I want to talk about that. And the reason I wanted to talk about it was a couple of things. But one is that we don't need any proof of 416 part 2. You know what 416 2 says? 416 part B says? It says the inward man is being renewed, but the outward man is perishing. It's saying we're all getting older. It says when you look in the mirror, you see things physically. When you sit down and you groan, when you stand up and you groan, when you walk and it hurts. Those of you that are under the age of 30, 40, 50 have no idea what I'm talking about, but your time is coming. How's that for an encouraging lesson? You look and you say, I, I've got gray hair now. I have less hair now. I've got more weight or I'm losing weight because I'm sick, whatever the case may be. It is evident that we are in the process of exiting this life. This life will come to an end, and there is nothing you can do to stop it. The outward man is perishing. We, however, though, have an entirely different perspective And that perspective comes because of what's written in the last part of 16, verse 17. Because, he says, the inward man is being renewed day by day. When I look in a spiritual mirror, boy, I'm looking better than I've ever looked before. I am fit. I am trim. I've got more hair than I've ever had. Spiritually, I look good. Now, don't do that in a pompous way. But it seems to me that what Paul, the Holy Spirit, is trying to do is to get us to a place where we say, I, I know that I'm getting sick. And I know that in the next probably 20 to 30 years for some of us, we're, or some of you, uh, maybe me, we don't know the day of our death, of course. But there's going to be a time where I exit this life. But I'm okay with that. Because the more important inward is being renewed. And I have a light affliction. I always always chuckled at verse 17 light affliction. Paul's talking about being stoned and beaten and robbed and thrown out of cities. And he says, it's just a light affliction. Some of you would appreciate the idea of it being a flesh wound, it's for a moment. And he says it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I love verse 4, and I love verse 2 where it uses the word groan. You may be here this morning, and before you got to the building, you literally groaned this morning because it was painful for you to be here. And you may think that you bring very little to the church table, spiritual table, religious table, but you are here this morning, you have brought a lot to the rest of us by simply being here in spite of your groaning physically and you're not feeling well and you're tired and you're not just tired because you didn't get a good night's sleep, you're just tired because you're at that point in life where you're just tired. And there's nothing I can do about that. But there is something that God can do about that in eternity and give you R-E-S-T. That is beyond any rest you'll ever have in this life. And so, this is a positive sermon because in verse 8, we look forward to our death. He says, we are confident, we are well-pleased to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I don't wish death on anyone, though there's nothing I can do to stop it for you or for me. But I do wish for you, especially maybe those of you that are struggling physically or emotionally or having some sort of a challenge in your life. And when your life comes to an end, Let us rejoice. Someone sent me a text just a couple of days ago. I said, you heard that so-and-so died, and I said, yes. And I thought, how am I gonna respond? And I just said, I'm glad he's home. I'm not really sure what else to say about individuals that we know were faithful servants of God, but that they're home, and that's okay. And so, maybe you're here this morning, and you are wrestling with death, wrestling with mortality wrestling with the idea that this life is going to come to an end, simply ask the question, can you say, I look forward to time in death? Again, I'm not suggesting that we all have to go out and say, well, I sure hope I die tomorrow. You get the point that I'm making, though? Some of you said, yeah, I got the point a long time ago. But hopefully you were able to work with me through these texts to see that death is not something that we should be afraid of, but rather we look forward to that when this life comes to an end, we have hope. We hope that you will join us in that this very morning. I appreciate Brother Josh leading us in songs. I I always, again, get a chuckle out of, especially sermons like this, when the song leader comes to me or sends me a text and says, hey, what's the sermon about? I want to get songs that are appropriate. And I said, death. (laughs) He said, okay. Does Jesus care in verse 3? When I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me, and all of us have said goodbye to someone, and all of us will say goodbye to someone, does he care about that? When my heart aches until it nearly breaks, does he see it? And then that chorus, as we sang three different times, says, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. And he cares about you. And the biggest concern in your life should not be your physical death, though that is a concern, but it should be where you spend your eternity. Someone once said that eternity was like real estate. It's all about the three things, right? Location, location location, where you spend it matters. And we want to try to help you to get to heaven by becoming a Christian this morning, by being baptized, having your sins wiped away, washed away, remember no more. What a wonderful thing that our Lord does for us. We'd be happy to help you with that. If you are a child of God and you've walked astray, you need to make some sort of correction, we'd welcome the opportunity to welcome you back along with the angels in heaven who will rejoice And we can pray for you and with you as you walk in the future to prepare for that time when you meet your Savior in death. If we can help you in any way, let us know While together we stand while we sing.